he said he wanted to give up. Okay. Shall we start then? Uh, well, good morning, everyone, and thank you for, for joining us uh, to this uh, event this morning. Um, it's a great pleasure to work. I'm uh, Philip Hildebrand here, who's the vice chairman of Black Rock. Thank you for, for joining us to discuss um, a very interesting topic, actually. We've had many events for Banking Union and many more, no doubt. Um, I believe there is a paper that you have written on, on the subject, and Philip is going to give a small uh, presentation about the main gist of this. We will post the paper on the uh, events page once we receive it. Um, and then uh, our director, Guntram Wolf, is going to kickstart the discussion before we open up the floor for, for a discussion with our audience. So, with this, Philip, 15 minutes, and then we can, uh, we can pass it on to Guntram. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me here. I've actually never been to Bruegel. Well, no, that's not quite true. I think in the old version of it. Uh, but I think it was in a different location, wasn't it? It was one floor down. Okay. Uh, anyhow, so it's a, it's a pleasure to be here, and thank you for, uh, for having me. This is a topic that, as you can imagine, is very dear to my heart. I think, um, I should say up front, I have always felt that um, the main reason for the, for the lagged recovery in Europe after the crisis <clears throat> was really much less related to monetary policy or specifically to QE and much more to the fact how Europe dealt with the banking system and the banks after the crisis in contrast to the United States, of course, where, as you know, as early as March 2009, then Treasury Secretary Tim Geithner conducted very bold and aggressive stress tests with a, um, a big public backstop and basically forced the banks to recapitalize very quickly. Um, we in Switzerland at the time um, did something similar in a sense by very, very quickly and very aggressively uh, pushing through new capital requirements, effectively it had the same effect where we forced the banks to recapitalize very quickly, very much against the sort of prevailing uh, public opinion or, or opinion of the banking lobby and the banking sector. But we had, a, I always said we had a unique window uh, in the sense that the public mood, as you can imagine, was such that we were able to do that. And I have felt strongly and still feel that way the more I look at the data and study history now of the last 10 years, that this delayed reaction in Europe, which really didn't happen until 2012, as you know, in many ways, is probably or remains the, the main explanation as to why Europe was so much slower in, in recovering. At any rate, um, so, the, obviously, the great financial crisis was a, a catalyst in Europe, despite what I just said, of very significant reform in the Economic and Monetary Union, and um, much has been achieved since those dark days. With the courageous calls for further fundamental reform, uh, President Macron is, in a sense, attempting to build on those um, post-crisis achievements. Unfortunately, as you all know, the momentum and the appetite for further uh, EMU reform has now slowed significantly, reflecting partly political delays and partly the fact that there, are, that there are deep differences of views in the different capitals on many, if not most, um, of the critical issues. The latest intellectual results and developments in Italy are bound to further entrench 
these opposing positions. Discussions around strengthening the European stability mechanism and appointing a euro area finance minister having a European budget, these are all inevitable components, in my view, of a long-term perspective on EMU. However, I feel they don't address what is needed now to make EMU function better. The most urgent component of the reform agenda is to complete not Europe's fiscal, but Europe's banking union. Crucially, completing banking union also happens to be feasible, as uh, I will argue. And as you mentioned, there is a paper which will be distributed afterwards, which goes into much more detail on what I'm about to say. If we first look at the origin of banking union in Europe, um, so the establishment in a sense of the Euro area's banking union in a regulatory sense, i.e. the transfer of banking policy from the national to the EU level, this was a direct consequence of the financial crisis. It took, in a sense, three versions of the crisis, 2008, 2010, and it wasn't until the third uh, iteration, 2012, in Europe that banking union formally came about. Since then, significant progress has been made. Overall, the banking sector in the euro area has stabilized. After the introduction of the single rule book, all European banks are now subject to the same regulation and capital and funding requirements defined in the uh, Capital Requirements Regulation, CRR, but also, importantly, to common stress testing and supervisory review and evaluation uh, process framework. With the SSM, 118 large banks are currently supervised by a single entity which takes key supervisory decisions. These banks are therefore subject to the same supervisory framework. At the same time, a common resolution framework and the single resolution fund was established under the aegis of the single resolution board. So far, for the good news. The bad news in Europe is the banking union is far from complete. Banks operate overwhelmingly on a national basis, and there is a lot of data on this in the paper, in particular for retail credit markets. In fact, and this might surprise some of you, contrary to what you might think um, or might expect, the fragmentation of euro area banking has not actually decreased, has not diminished since the formation uh, of banking union. The incompleteness of banking union in Europe is not just a technical matter. It is crucially important for the long-term sustainability of the euro area. Because the banking union is not complete, the banking sector in the euro area does not act as a risk-sharing mechanism across borders via credit markets that could mitigate financial crises. In the public debate, uh, the discussion of completing banking union has so far tended to revolve almost exclusively around the adoption of a common deposit insurance scheme and a common bank resolution fund. Not surprisingly, given that these effectively involve a common financing instrument, the politics of the discussion have been very challenging, to say the least. Germany and others object to such risk sharing unless significant risk reduction takes place first in the form of a reduction of still large non-performing loan stocks and the reduction of large exposures to highly indebted sovereigns. 
Such a position, in my view, is entirely understandable. The ECB has cautiously taken a position in this debate. Notably, Mario Draghi supported demands to complete the Euro area's banking union by setting up a stronger publicly funded backstop for failing banks in the form of a backstop to the Single Resolution Fund. ECB Vice President Constancio recently said that in the ECB's view, sufficient risk reduction has now been achieved to move ahead with the European Deposit Insurance Scheme. In fact, the ECB and the European Commission came forward with renewed calls for a fully-fledged European Deposit Insurance Scheme. It is worth noting that while the statement of Mario Draghi acknowledges, in particular, the benefits of cross-border integration, both policymakers focus mostly on the public risk-sharing piece of it. So there are different and contrary views, and it seems to me that the debate is stuck. All you need to do is look at uh, Bundesbank President Jens Weidmann's latest statements on the common deposit insurance, and you get a sense how far apart the positions lie. The euro area should be treated um, as a single jurisdiction for supervisory purposes, with all the benefits that entails in terms of capital and liquidity requirements. Since this would partly entail a change to the current regulatory regime in Europe, this can obviously not be achieved by the ECB alone, but also has a political component. In other words, it would have to be agreed by the European Parliament and the Council. In particular, regulation and supervision should allow a free flow of capital and liquidity between um, euro area subsidiaries or branches of the same bank group. Europe would incur undeniable benefits from a pan-European banking union. First of all, and in light of the horrendous experience during the financial crisis, European integration and the development of pan-European banks could reduce banks' vulnerability to asymmetric shocks. The main source um, of Europe's current vulnerability is the European banks' overwhelming exposure to their respective national economies and local sovereigns. This is what turns any downturn into a vicious cycle of weaker bank balance sheets, weaker lending, weaker economic activity, um, and weaker sovereign. Cross-border banks could offset losses in one region with income from another region or other countries and therefore would not be forced to cut lending in a recession. Uh, as local banks. Here I find myself in full agreement with Mario Draghi's recent statements that a banking union would deliver meaningful private risk sharing that is currently lacking in the euro area in comparison to the US. If you look at the, these figures, um, it's also clear that private risk sharing mechanisms could address concerns of the detractors of fiscal union. To, to a significant extent, it would deliver by way of the private markets, precisely what Germany is so worried about, will be delivered by forced fiscal pooling at the expense of the German taxpayer. 
In contrast to the European deposit insurance, the diversification benefit can make the banking sector more resilient and as such minimize occurrence of crisis situations in which a pan-European deposit insurance would ever be needed in the first place. So again, this could be seen as a direct response to long-standing German concerns. Finally, the existence of true European banks might also, in the end, solve the dilemma around the European deposit insurance. In this case, the political fear that funds from one country are used to bail out the banking sector of another country becomes less relevant. Uh, the issue of further developing the banking union should, in my view, be seen in light of accountabilities and the future role of the ECB. Under the current and indeed much of the previous presidency, the ECB has had no choice but to focus relentlessly on crisis interventions. It seems to me that under the coming presidency, an absolutely crucial priority will be to have to do whatever it takes to complete the banking union. A fully integrated Euro-area banking market would make sure the ECB faces less uncomfortable monetary dilemmas when the next crisis hits. However, as I suggested already, this cannot be achieved by the ECB alone, or in this case, uh, more specifically, the, SSS, the SSM alone. Supervisors have a role to play and can support a consolidation of the banking sector, and there are specific things that can be done at that level, which I point out uh, in the paper. But it would be up to the European Commission, the Council, and the European Parliament appropriately to adapt the regulatory framework. Last but not least, cross-border consolidation requires an acceptance on the political level to give up influence on the financial sector and also to allow foreign ownership of institutions that may have been seen as national champions in the past. So in the end, a full banking union can only be achieved in a political process. Political willingness is therefore a prerequisite for a truly pan-European banking market. I'll stop here. Uh, as I said, there's a lot more in the, uh, in the paper. Um, the one thing perhaps that um, I would want to add is that this should also be seen as an opportunity for uh, many of the large banks. Uh, it's pretty clear that one of the fundamental problems we've had in Europe in the past, which I think is part of the explanation of the crisis, at least the European version of it, is that um, banks were essentially tied into either having a kind of tight national scope and scale to operate in, or um, to supplement that activity by having very risky um, activities on their balance sheet. This is exactly what, uh, of course, happened in Germany to a number of the Landesbanken. Or the third version of this, essentially, is what we see uh, in the case of Deutsche Bank and others in Europe, including in Switzerland, where um, the scale was sought, in a sense, by these terrible entries into U.S.-style investment banking, which, of course, led to so much uh, turmoil.
turmoil uh, and still is being sort of absorbed as we speak today, certainly in the case of Deutsche Bank. So the ability to operate at scale at a European level uh, would, in my mind at least, uh, address a lot of these dilemmas. Uh, I think the, the final point to make here as a, as a person coming from finance today is, of course, that these banks need clarity in terms of setting strategy. Uh, it is very hard today if you're sitting, if you're the chairman or the CEO of any of these financial institutions, to make long-term strategic plans when you don't really know whether the intent and the ultimate goal is really to create a proper, fully integrated uh, market in Europe, or whether, uh, at the end of the day, it remains fragmented uh, by way of capital requirements, liquidity requirements, or anything else. So um, we also have to be, I think, very mindful of the fact that it's not appropriate to kind of demand this push coming entirely from the private sector when ultimately the regulatory a supervisory and political framework is not clarified up front. Uh, this is a hard call to make, whether you direct your strategy towards a pan-European uh, approach and market and try to scale yourself up at the European level, whether you kind of shrink to serve the national market or, in my view, in the worst case, go back to uh, the terrible strategies of the pre-crisis days when you try to compete in balance sheet intensive trading oriented investment banking with the US banks. So I think um, the banks here require clarity uh, in their defense in a way in terms of setting uh, the appropriate long-term strategy and making uh, the needed investments in that sense. So I'll end here and look forward to the discussion. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, sir. You touched on a number of very, um, on a, on a very different issues. Some of them are perhaps easier to think about. Others are a little bit more difficult. In particular, I think the main challenge that I take from your, what your comments, the comments you made is that the European banks have a very national scope. And how do we go about reducing that in a way that serves um, the risk-sharing argument that we all try to establish? Guntram, what are your first thoughts yes. on, uh, on this? Well, um, thank you, Maria, and thank you, Philip, for the great presentation. Now, um, I do have a PowerPoint where I sketch a few a few thoughts on, on the topic, but uh, since I didn't have the speech before, let me perhaps react first to a few points that, that Philip, Philip made and then, uh, then move to my presentation. So, so I guess the first point uh, I want to make in reaction is that I um, certainly... Uh, share the view that um, Europe's growth performance in the last um, five or eight years has been so miserable to a significant extent because of um, the way we dealt with our banks and the fact that we've been slow in cleaning up um, the banking system at diff in different countries to different extents, but extent, but you know, basically we have been uh, relatively slow. Now, whether it's the main reason for the slow uh, recovery and the double dip in 2011-12, uh, I think uh, is certainly up to debate. Um, but it certainly is an important factor. Um, I would certainly also want to mention that 2011-12. Uh, we had a number of uh, significant macroeconomic uh, decisions that went in the wrong direction, and that certainly had a major impact on, 
on growth and uh, and uh, and the recovery um, and uh, you know that I I wouldn't want to push under the carpet. So so I, I certainly agree on the banks, but macro factors also played a significant role. Now the second point I wanted to make is that um, I think the point your main point that you know we need cross border banking. Um, I think is a point that I, I share uh, for a long time. Um, with my colleague André, we had a paper at the um, informal ECOFIN in 2013, um, where uh, we said, well, the neglected side of banking union, uh, um, uh, that was the, the title of the paper, and um, it was essentially about um, cross-border mergers and the need for banking systems and capital markets to integrate uh, cross-border. And a lot of our work in the last uh, few years has been about papers uh, that cover both aspects, the capital market side and the banking side um, of cross-border border integration. And on the capital side, we just again had a paper at the, um, at the informal ECOFIN in Sofia where we discussed um, uh, the the need for uh, the next step to move ahead to move ahead on the next step on capital markets union because they are also if you look at capital markets here also you see a very very significant fragmentation uh, of the financial system across national borders in the sense that equity markets are basically national is very little uh, cross border equity lending uh, equity ownership which is of course absolutely necessary if you want to share risks through financial markets, you cannot do that without cross-border ownership, um, but also in terms of um, uh, other financial instruments, the cross-border dimension is, is quite underdeveloped. Now, um, per perhaps let me move to the presentation. Um, and then, uh, then I will conclude asking why that is the case, which is, I think, and Philip alluded to this, um, uh, a difficult question of the interplay between politics and uh, and what financial market actors are, are doing. And, um, and I think it's basically the main reason why um, the financial system hasn't yet moved in that direction is related to politics. And certainly the latest, uh, let's say, political developments in, uh, in Italy, for example, will make it even harder um, for uh, major financial institutions to take such decisions because basically uh, um, on the political level, things look still very unclear on what, what we want from this, from this Eurozone and from this European Union, right? So, so and I think that's a very fundamental uncertainty that makes it very difficult for financial actors to, uh, to move ahead. So, so let me let me give you a few a few um, sort of slides to to uh, beef up a bit a bit uh, my thinking on this. So, oops. So, so on. Okay. So. Okay. So, um, I mean, first, I think all of you know this. Um, where do we stand? Um, on this project of banking union at, at this stage? Well, we've done a lot. I mean, there's a single rule book, there is the single supervisory mechanism, there's a single resolution board and a single resolution fund that is being built up. I think there, um, on the third point, we are all aware that um, even if the single resolution fund is fully built up, 
uh, it's insufficient in size to deal with um, significant um, banking crisis. So there is a big question here on what kind of um, uh, uh, lifeline or backstop um, is available um, if, if a major bank had to go into resolution. And in a sense, I think here that's also quite well understood that um, the, uh, the case of the Spanish uh, Publico Bank um, was, um, in a sense, we were lucky that uh, a buyer was out there, um, Santander, and uh, was basically ready to buy overnight if um, the resolution had 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 to be done via um, the single resolution fund, it would have driven the um, the balance sheet of the single resolution fund um, to the limit or even exceeded the limits of the of the balance sheet of the single resolution fund. So in other words, even if we had wanted to resolve that bank as a public um, as a single resolution board, we would not have had the instruments to actually put it on on the public balance sheet and then resolve it. So I think there was a that shows there was a there is already now a limit, and this was just a sort of a mid-sized um, uh, a bank in in one country. Um, so clearly there is an issue here about you know how do you organize it when something bigger happens. Now then there is the deposit insurance discussion and Philip uh, discussed that quite quite a bit. Uh, we don't uh, have anything on this. We don't make progress on it. Um, and the political will to move um, on this is um, absolutely not there. Um, uh, if anything, uh, I think the, the skepsis um, has increased in the last um, uh, six to 12 months. Um, and while it's true that um, sort of there is this discussion on risk sharing and risk reduction, I think basically it's still um, very difficult for any politician in a in in an uh, let's say in my home country in Germany to sell this. I mean, basically it's still seen as um, uh, in talk shows and everywhere as oh now we are asked to pay for. Um, uh, bad loans in Italian banks. I mean, that's what everybody says in every talk show. So no politician actually actually uh, opposes this. And you know, I think I don't see this really really moving. And you know, as 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 wrong as the statement is, um, I mean, it's something that's out there in the in the public perception. Um, let's say insuring banks is unpopular in any way, in any case. Um, <laughs> And insuring banks in other countries um, is almost unsellable for um, for uh, national policymakers. So I, I think here we probably need some some new thinking. I think the proposal by um, <clears throat> my colleagues uh, uh, Nicolas Veron and and Isabel Schnabel, I think uh, go in in a direction of trying to to solve the political problem that we have here. Uh, I would still say um, it would result in an incomplete banking union because they, they basically only think of, I mean, they, they want to unify the deposit insurance, but then have um, national uh, risk differentiation, which, I mean, I, I think is perhaps the only way to go there politically. Um, but, of course, it would relay, uh, result in... Um, uh, a, a continued fragmentation of the banking system in the sense that um, deposits would um, yield, um, uh, would have to uh, uh, be
be asked, depositors would have to be asked different fees um, depending on the on country specific risks, right? So the insurance would cost differently. I mean, the insurance would be the same everywhere, but the cost for the insurance would be country country dependent. Now, <clears throat> so now, now, then let me just show you a few numbers on where we are on banking integration. That is the work that, and I had recently on, on our blog, but um, there was an old, the, the 2013 paper to the informal ECOFIN uh, was a previous exercise where we did this. And you know, what we, what we study here is we study um, to what extent um, euro area banks are acquired by other banks, so mergers and acquisitions, um, depending on the regional uh, location of the other bank. And so the, the light blue, the biggest one, is basically a merger within the same country, right? So as you see, the predominant uh, share of banking mergers and acquisitions is happening within countries. Cross-border is very rare. It's a, it's a, it's a minority. Now, among the cross-border, um, the euro area, another euro area country is actually just one of many. It's, uh, so it's not that euro area is absolutely dominant among the non-same um, uh, non country mergers. So you see, I mean, basically, um, uh, banking consolidation happens at the national level and not at, uh, not at, at a, European, a European level. I think the, the second point that you see in this chart is that um, there's really no uh, there's really no pattern visible on that that banking union made a difference. I mean, so so this is, I mean, we we've seen before the crisis take two thousand seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. I mean, so in all of these years, it's always been predominantly national consolidations. And after 2012, 13, 14, nothing has changed. I mean, this is this looks the same. I mean, the, there's a cyclical pattern, but you know the, the proportions, the relative proportions, uh, there's no systematic systematic pattern. Now, <clears throat> then you can ask, well, what kind of uh, mergers do we see? Um, do we see um, mergers and acquisitions? Do we see? Um, uh, banks taking controlling shares or minority shares. Um, and what you see is that um, controlling shares uh, are dominant in, in within country mergers, while for other euro area countries, so if you do cross-border mergers, what you typically see is that banks take minority shares, right? So you don't take you don't you don't buy a bank in another country and and take the majority share. You take a minority share. That's that's on average what you do. Now has this this pattern changed? Well, it actually has changed in the wrong direction. Um, oh, so so this sorry, so this is pre pre 2012. And so look at the third column. You will see that the controlling um, share. Um, uh, for cross-border mergers within the Eurozone was 43% um, of the cases. So in 43% of the cases, you take a controlling share of the cases of cross-border mergers. In 50-70%, you take a, a non-controlling share, a minority share. Now, you would think that thanks to banking union and more banking integration, the controlling share would increase, right? Because you're now more confident that you're basically in an integrated banking market, so you can more confidently go ahead and actually 
take control of a bank uh, in another country, well, it has gone down. We are at 38% now compared to 43. Now, that may be not statistically significant. It's probably just one or two two banks that we have in that sample, uh, I mean, that, that that make that difference. But still, I found it I found it interesting that this this hasn't hasn't moved in the right direction. Okay, so so I think this this is in terms of of the numbers. Now now then you can speculate. Well, perhaps things will change now. Um, and you know we are having big debates in the team whether uh, you know um, this is just sort of at the beginning of seeing something else. Um, and some people are very optimistic. Say you know we have now basically introduced the structures and um, uh, uh, mechanisms that are necessary so that increasingly there will be cross-border bank mergers. We have the single supervision, which really is a powerful instrument. And we've been always saying that the SSM is actually a very powerful institution, but um, so far we haven't seen it, and so we don't know how, how this will, will go uh, going forward. And that brings me, I guess, to the point that you mentioned very prominently and that I think I would also echo is, um, you know, there is this, this very big interaction between private risk sharing and uh, public risk sharing. And, you know, I think there is a sort of a rhetoric that has um, become very strong that, uh, you know, we want to do lots of private risk sharing because that will mean we need to do less public risk sharing cross-border in the monetary union and that's very popular and you know it's a nice way to sell um, capital markets uh, union and banking union however i think it doesn't solve the issue the issue is that bank ceos um, don't take a decision to do cross-border mergers if they don't see that this is actually a political entity that wants to increasingly integrate if they feel that you know, at any moment things can uh, can explode for whatever reason, uh, they will not take these kind of decisions. So I, I, I think what we said at the informal ECOFIN in, in Sofia in the paper uh, on capital markets, you know, we said, well, fiscal risk sharing and private risk sharing, they're complements, not substitutes. So you do a little bit more on the public risk sharing. I think you will start convincing a lot of the people uh, in the financial institutions that have to take decisions um, to actually also go ahead and do some cross-border mergers, cross-border risk sharing uh, themselves. But I think in the absence of any willingness to move on the public, I think we will not, that's my hypothesis, we will not see so much on the, on the, on the private sector side. Let me stop here. Thank you very much, Gunjaman. I suppose, Philip, you would like to react to this. But if I may add to just the very last point that, that Gunjaman made on this complementarity between the public and the private risk sharing, there is also structural factors that are surely keeping banking union from advancing the direction that you would like to see. Uh, banks remain very much the financiers of domestic governments. And, you know, that, how do you change something like that? <coughs> Um, indeed, how, how would banks decide to go elsewhere if there is a tax systems, insolvent systems that they don't understand? I mean, these things are very varied in the European Union and in the Euro, in the Euro area. Can you really talk about uh, um, you know, increasing cross-border mergers without greater homogeneity in these structural types of issues? Yes, um, thank you. Well, look, I think the most important point here that... Um, really gets lost, in my view, in this whole discussion. Clearly, 
these two, the fiscal and the market approach, or as you said, the fiscal and the, and the, um, the private risk sharing approach are at some level complementary, but there's something that distinguishes them, I think, in a, in a very important way, namely that the fiscal discussion, um, whether it's the resolution fund or the common deposit insurance, only comes into play once you have a crisis. Um, and so you can't blame the Germans, in my view, for not wanting this today when you have questions about, potentially questions about Italian long-term membership of EMU, when you still have 5% of bad loans uh, in Italy. I think that's a perfectly understandable uh, point. The, what I'm proposing is, doesn't, is something different. It's complementary at some level, of course, conceptually, but it's different because what it does, if we can get to it, if we can make progress in cross-border integration, it actually reduces the risk of a crisis occurring in the first place. Mm. And so, you know, one of the things I've learned as a, as a central banker, it's much better to do things that reduce the risk of really bad things happening than having to step in and clean up once they happen. Um, I know that was sort of Greenspan's philosophy, you just leave it alone and clean up when the, when the thing bursts, but I think that has turned out not to be a very wise philosophy. And, and I find it's, it's that part of the discussion that, in a sense, gets lost, right? That if we can forge ahead on this, it doesn't cost anything up front fiscally. It's actually not necessary to do fiscal risk sharing in order to get private market integration moved forward. And what it does, because you diversify the banking sector, you break this terrible nexus between the banks and the sovereign, which has been at the, at, has really been the root cause of uh, the crisis events we've had. And so therefore, you make it less likely that a crisis occurs in the first place. I'm not suggesting that this is easy to do or quick to do or that you, we can reduce the risk to zero. So at some level, we're still going to need those uh, response mechanisms you know, sometime in the future, hopefully not anytime soon. But what we can do by integrating the market, it really reduces the risk by way of private market diversification. Um, and, and finally, it would kind of break this terrible nexus that I mentioned, and there's more details in the paper, between the, the sovereign and the banking sector, which of course has been, has been this kind of horrible root cause, as I said, of, of all the bad things that have happened in, in, in Greece, Spain, Portugal, um, so far. So I think um, that's kind of my main point. Now, there are certain things, uh, you, I agree with your first chart, but of course there are a number of things that still can and need to be done in order to encourage banks to, um, to move ahead. Capital is not treated the same way, so if you have several branches or subsidiaries, you'll have to have different capital requirements that you have to meet. You can't freely move around liquidity and capital, so there is still um, regulatory, legislative in some cases, supervisory hurdles that still stand today. On top of that, of course, we have an overbanked system. This is a point that I go into some detail in the paper, which is particularly sensitive in Germany. I mean, one of the reasons why Germany would struggle with this, you know, is because of their own structure with the Sparkassen and the Landesbanken. 
because this inevitably, once you kind of get this ball rolling, it will lead to pressure on overbanked countries, which of course, again, in the long term is a good thing for the economy, but will uh, imply some political sacrifices uh, in the countries where that's the case. Uh, in terms of the your question, I don't think, you know, assuming that the capital regulations are such, the liquidity regulations are such that you don't get punished to go across countries, uh, I'm not sure that different uh, fiscal regimes or tax regimes in different countries will be much of an impediment. Uh, there is, of course, the impediment which currently still exists of the non-performing loans. Although I would say, you know, this is perhaps a bit controversial, but um, perhaps Vitor has a point in the sense that if there is a discussion between Sokchen and Unicredit, that would tell me that there is enough courage to kind of think about that despite the fact that you still have NPLs in, in, in Italy. So that's a, a promising sign, but one of the things that surely needs to be done to encourage this is just relentless continued pressure to reduce the NPLs in the southern countries where they still uh, are a problem. And that's something the SSM can do and should be doing more forcefully in my view uh, because the quicker you get to the bottom of that, the more you kind of unleash this mechanism where people actually begin to think about cross-border acquisitions or mergers. Um, and indeed, again, the fact that we have this discussion, I don't know how serious it is. Uh, it doesn't always mean when something is on page one of the, of the FT that it's real. But the mere fact that these discussions seem to be taking place in a way is a sign that should give us some hope. Um, you know, maybe one point on Italy, which is sort of the elephant in the room. Uh, the other thing that I really like about this market approach is, at some level, you could actually deal with a terrible problem in Italy uh, in this context, in the following sense. By definition, uh, only banks that operate in countries that continue to be committed to monetary union would come into play in a cross-border context, right? So uh, unlike the fiscal risk-sharing dimension, where at the moment I don't see how you push that discussion forward, um, this one actually could move forward uh, even if you have question marks about a particular country and its commitment to, um, to the euro in the long term, because if that commitment is in question, then that country would simply not be part of that integration play at some level. It doesn't mean that the integration per se cannot continue, uh, cannot continue elsewhere. Now, hopefully, we'll never get to that um, fundamental question, but I think it's another reason why, in terms of sequencing, and this is the essence of, of my paper, we should kind of think about turning things on the head and begin with market integration rather than fiscal integration uh, up front. Because again, you know, and this is really important, the fiscal integration only comes to play when we have the next big crisis. Um, whereas what I'm proposing reduces the probability of that crisis occurring in the first place. We have a long way to go. You mentioned it as well, and I can give you some more data points just so that, uh, you know, nothing has moved in terms of integration since banking union. It's pretty extraordinary. I was myself 
kind of shocked to see these numbers. Um, the intra-euro area cross-border claims, as well as the market share of foreign branches and subsidiaries, has actually significantly decreased since 2008. So we've gone backwards. Uh, if you look at, um, in 2017, domestic institutions accounted for 86% of all loans to your area non-financial institutions. So 87% of all loans to the economy emanate from local banks. And that number, again, has not moved since the introduction of banking union. Or another way to look at it, this is basically your data, that this is a little, the last data point we have is 2016. But at that point, uh, the foreign-owned bank share of domestic banking system was just 17%. So, you know, it's important to put these numbers out. Nothing has actually moved on the ground, despite all the things that have been accomplished, as you, as you put it out. And so, therefore, we continue to be massively exposed to this nexus, this terrible nexus between the sovereign and the banks. Because, basically, the banks are full of their own sovereign risk. If I may ask you, in, in, in the end of June, we have a big uh, uh, the European summit, and, and you know everybody has high expectations for what could be agreed on this summit. But in, in order to push the, the uh, integration of the banking system, what, what types of things would you like to see coming out of this, of this uh, summit that, that would be, that yeah. be successful? Um, well, I, I'd say two things, ideally. Um, one is a set of specific technical things to reduce the remaining or eliminate or at least the commitment, they wouldn't do it at the summit immediately, but a commitment to reducing the remaining uh, obstacles um, in terms of mostly in terms of capital and liquidity requirements, that would send a big signal. If I'm a CEO of a big bank and I'm now told that actually it doesn't, I don't get penalized anymore from a capital or liquidity perspective by when I, when I invest in another country or make an acquisition, um, I think that would, be, that would be a very big signal. And that's something, as I said, that unfortunately cannot be done entirely through, um, through the supervisors. So this is, to some extent, uh, the Commission has to be involved, or the Council. Uh, you could recognize the benefits from a pan-European diversification pillar two capital requirements. Again, it's the sort of same subset of the same story. These are quite technical issues, but they're, they're very important. Right now, it costs me money as a banker if I want to make an acquisition in, in a different country. Um, so I think that's the most important thing. The second thing, of course, and this is where Germany comes back into play, is an acknowledgement, in a sense, that um, you know this will lead to just by sheer way of market forces, it, once you allow this process to occur and take hold, the pressure on the overbanked systems will increase, and therefore it, there has to be a, a willingness in Germany here for once, you know, the, the debate can almost be reversed where something can be asked of Germany as opposed to the other way around. Uh, namely to say you have to be prepared to rethink uh, a significant part of your banking system. I, I don't want to be conspirative here or, or say something that I don't really know. I always try to say the facts, but if you look at the German debate, it seems fairly obvious. Others uh, in the room may know more about this, but at least I would say there is pretty strong evidence at the moment that the, the Sparkassen lobby 
uh, is a very powerful element of you know the opposition to um, the the fiscal uh, risk sharing that is that is on the table, uh, and I think there's a good reason for that uh, because if you really push ahead with banking union, this will have repercussions on the structure of the German banking system. There's no question in my mind about that. And the data, in fact, shows that Germany is heavily overbanked. Uh, now, you know, the classic argument is that because these banks don't have the same profit motive, uh, at some level it is cheaper for the consumer. And that is true. You're, you're probably a client of, of a Sparkassen somewhere. Uh, but of course, as, as all of you know, from a macroeconomic perspective, there are costs associated to that which are not taken into account when you look at it simply uh, sort of on one side of the balance sheet, as it were. So um, this is a difficult discussion, but, you know, um, from a sort of ordnungspolitische Sicht, this should be something that if the Germans are disciplined, they should uh, also take into account as a, uh, as a real problem. So um, those are some of the things that, so a signal from Germany that it's willing to kind of accept or at least think about the implications of its current historic structure of the banking system. Uh, and I must tell you, I mean, I'm not naive. When I proposed these things, I was recently at an event in Germany, the pushback was pretty hard, um, particularly as far as the implications for the Sparkassen system goes. Um, the Landesbanken is probably less of an issue now, much has already evolved there since the crisis. And then removing the specific regulatory supervisory and in some cases legislative hurdles that still exist mostly around questions of capital and liquidity treatment when you go cross-border. Very concrete, sir. That's, uh, yeah. that's, uh, that's There's more in the, more details in here. I don't want to bore you with the technicalities. No, we can, but we can certainly uh, discuss this. Good job. Yeah. Do, you, do you agree with that or would you like to see something more coming out of the when it comes to banking integration to the, um, <clears throat> from the June meeting? Well, I mean, I, I, uh, for the June meeting, uh, I certainly don't think it makes much sense to uh, push the deposit insurance anymore because I think that, that battle is lost um, uh, at this stage at least. I do think there is quite a bit on um, uh, to agree on the liquidity ring fencing and the equity ring fencing. I mean, I, I actually do share that concern, and I think it's, I mean, there's lots of evidence out there that uh, the supervisor and the regulator is still very much ring fencing uh, across uh, at the national level. And so, so, I mean, that's basically incompatible with an integrated banking market. Um, now, um, I guess then the, I mean, the, I guess the concern um, that I would raise, and you know, I think that more broadly needs to be discussed, and where I think philosophies are very different, um, is about um, the point you mentioned at the end, which is, um, you know, what kind of banking system, what kind of banking structure do we do we think is the best uh, for for an economy, right? And so I, I think the empirical evidence would suggest it's actually good to have a diversified financial system where you have banks alongside with significantly developed capital markets. And I, I am sort of thinking we should push it in that direction. Um, but I don't think there is that much evidence, unfortunately, on um, you know what is the best model in terms of big versus small banks, right? And you know, do we need more small, do we need more big banks? Um, 
I mean, big banks certainly come um, also with significant risks, uh, systemic risks, um, that I think one has to keep in mind. And Switzerland, in a sense, is a country that um, you know, has a lot of big banks, but then in the crisis, when the crisis, after the crisis, they realized, oh my God, these are really huge potentially contingent liabilities, so we really want them to be really, really well uh, capitalized. And, you know, we are nowhere there um, in, in Europe. So, so, so perhaps one thing one, one should reflect on is um, if one pushes for a model where, and by the way, the problem with the small banks is it's not so trivial either because the small banks, the Sparkassen, of course, they, they are also all very much integrated and dependent on each other. So they almost act like one big bank, right? So, I mean, it's not that these things are uh, risk-free um, for, the, for the public sector. But okay, I mean, so at least there's a little bit more, let's say, compartmentalized. But but I do think we need a debate, of course, um, connected to this whole discussion is as we uh, want this European banking system to integrate more cross-border, we will see more bigger banks that are cross-border players and bigger in terms of balance sheet side. And are our capital requirements for these banks actually sufficient? Yes or no? And I, I think probably we need to be tougher and, you know, Increase, increase the capital share in these banks. So you're saying that actually the, it doesn't come without risk, banking integration. It's not entirely a sort of one-way process. It brings risks with it. Yeah, we look, the Swiss case is an interesting one here. The, it's true, of course, that we have, we had, if you look at the data before the crisis, I used to show this chart around to colleagues in Basel and elsewhere. You probably remember it. We had, um, in 2007, the two big banks' balance sheets at the aggregate level were almost 10 times GDP, right? So um, we knew we had a problem. However, I will say this, the risks in the banks and what ultimately caused the near failure of UBS had nothing to do with traditional banking. Uh, this was all trading-based, um, you know, uh, investment banking. Uh, trying to copy the U.S. investment bank. So I think um, the size itself, of course, they were big too before the crisis in terms of the, the domestic loan book, but there was never a problem in that part of the, the balance sheet of the two big banks. The loan book never moved. Um, incidentally, it didn't move either when we increased capital requirements. This was one of the criticisms as the banks always brought forward when we started talking about much higher capital requirements, oh, we will cut lending. Of course, they never did that. And we were, we were certain they wouldn't do it because once you do that, you essentially squeeze yourself out of the market. You know, you can't gain that market share back later on. So the lending book, the domestic lending book, actually never moved and was never in trouble. Uh, so all the problems came from um, the U.S. side, frankly, of the business. So I'm not sure size, you know, size per se doesn't tell you everything. It all depends sure. uh, where the size comes from. Okay, well, this is a good time to also bring our audience into the conversation. Uh, if we can take a few questions. Um, so let's start. <laughs> okay, we collect, we collect a few questions. So there's a question there, then Javier, and then Marie. Yeah, thank you very much. My, my name is Uwe Wissen. I work for the European External Action Service. I was uh, many years abroad uh, during the financial crisis. I was in Korea. We did a project with Bruegel uh, also. When I came back, uh, my two bank accounts had changed names, and the banks were different. 
Um, so to some extent, I'm saying this because it seems like the integration is like through mergers and takeovers. But on that micro level of why is this integration not happening, I think we, we should also look at the different model. I mean, taking over a bank is an easy thing. I mean, maybe not as easy as, uh, as you were saying, but in fact, when, you, when you're talking about doing business in the EU, and from a customer point of view, it's extremely difficult, the nitty-gritty, and it, this is, I think, where we should look at. I don't think it requires a European regulation, or perhaps it does, I don't know. But what are the real reasons why banks do not go abroad to do business? Uh, I give an example from, 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 from a non-bank thing. I wanted to order something from a company in Köln, Cologne, um, and it was saved for delivery to, to Brussels abroad. It would charge 30 euros, so that delivery would be so expensive. Now, if I had ordered the same item from Berlin, which is like three times distance, the distance from Cologne, it would have been free. So why in the European Union do we still have these kind of obstacles? And what kind of obstacles do we have specifically in banking? So for instance, can a German bank seize property in Belgium, for instance, if, if somebody doesn't pay the, the, the mortgage back and that sort of thing? And, and where do we have to dig here? Is it European regulators having to force companies or public authorities in different member states to change things like we did with roaming, for instance, roaming charges, which is almost like you know, forcing kind of companies to, to, I mean, dictating prices, like in, almost in a socialist economy. Uh, but there was no other way to actually make them work together and, uh, and do business according to, to costs and, and cost customer demands. But so the old monopolies, the old structures and so on seem to be dominating a lot of markets in Europe and certainly the banking sector is no exception, especially when you think about it, just a few years ago making a transfer from one country to another was extremely difficult and costly. Now, thanks to the IBAN system, it's become cheaper, but still there have been a lot of these kind of structures that, that have been taking place, and I'm not surprised they're not being broken up, because at that macro level, I don't think that's going to change at the micro level, plus linguistic differences, of course. If I'm a customer and I want to do business with a German bank when I'm in Italy, how to do that? Okay, let's say two questions here at the front, and we'll, we'll have uh, Javier and Marie, and then we'll have one more round. Yes, well, Javier Arias, BBVA, have uh, probably a couple of comments on that. Uh, first of all, uh, well, it seems that the banking union, this is a desirable thing to, to be done before some date, could be uh, uh, the end of this year. Second is, uh, I think that everyone agrees on that. Second is, what is the rate balance between risk reduction and reserving? So someone has to put this bar at a given point because still seems that, you know, we are never ending this uh, on, on, on this figure. So if we want to move forward, probably we have to agree on how much. Second, uh, uh, that was raised the issue whether there is no the right incentives to cross-border mergers. Uh, well, there is no the right incentives probably for banking uh, to uh, remain on our own in the sense that uh, the, if the cost of capital is much higher than, than the return equity of the banking system, how sustainable it is going to be the, the, uh, the banking industry. So that, that's one thing. In spite of whether the interest rate, that they are in a uh, zero zone or negative zone, in spite of that, profitability of banks is, is extremely low. So, uh, and, and there are so many, so many uh, risks uh, looming on a cross-border merger, whether uh, this uh, digital transformation, would that make sense to, to buy physical assets 
Uh, that's, there are so many, uh, you know, uh, hidden uh, issues popping up on legal issues which might come up after a cross-border merger, even within a domestic merger as well. So I think there there's too many, too many issues which probably need to be uh, addressed as well because this is uh, uh, not an easy, an easy solution. But nevertheless, for me, the most important uh, uh, issue is to fix the right level on resharing risk reduction and then to see whether we are ready to, to you know, to assume this in this figure. Thank you. Thank you for a very interesting discussion. A lot of what I've heard is music to my ears, and I certainly share the, the goal of uh, having a better integrated banking union, capital market union, uh, and, and, and favoring uh, cross-border activities and reducing segregation. Though, unless you are able to clarify, I have an impression there is some circularity in the reasoning of what I heard today. Because um, on the one hand, I hear that private resharing, cross-border activity, uh, cross-ownership, cross-border mergers, banking integration, capital market integration, and pushing forward private resharing would help reducing uh, the, the, the extreme scenarios of having to manage a crisis, reducing the likelihood of a crisis, and re reducing the likelihood of the use and the need of the fiscal union. So the reasoning was a bit let, let's put private resharing, and somehow it will come a long way. We will still need somehow, but you know, we, we are pushing back a bit the need for discussing fiscal union and so on. Well, unless I misunderstood what you said, I think at the same time, there was a discussion in the beginning of your presentation that CEOs, chairman of financial institutions, markets need certainty to actually engage in those cross-border activities and to actually deliver that private risk sharing. Why? because they need the third pillar of the banking union. We need to achieve the architecture we started in and finish. So how do we break that circle? Because Thank you. Yeah. Okay, well, let's come back to the panel. We, we, we collect questions because there's a few questions more. We have time, so. Philip. Um, let me, one thing that came up indirectly and explicitly in your question, you know, I want to be clear, what I'm talking about here is banking union, not capital markets union. Unlike most of my um, colleagues in American kind of run firms, I actually think that's kind of something that I'm not suggesting to remove it from the agenda, but kind of put it a little bit on the side. This whole, uh, Americans of course love to kind of tell us that we should have a capital markets union. The reality is we're not going to have one anytime soon. And, you know, the reality is Europe will remain a banking-financed economy for a long time to come. I'm not suggesting we should not move in that direction. Although I must tell you that the history of the crisis tells me, you know, integrated capital markets is not always a great thing. So I, I kind of have the view that uh, that's a long-term objective, perhaps. But the banking side is much, much more important because at the end of the day, our economies are funded by banks, not by capital markets. And that's not going to change anytime soon, no matter how much the Americans want to tell us we should move 
to a capital markets-based system. It's just sheer math. It's just going to take a long, long, long time before Europe looks anything like the United States in terms of the funding of the economy, which is why, you know, the delay in fixing the banks uh, was so dramatic for Europe, I believe. You're right, of course, there were other things going on, but that, you know, when you have a macroeconomic shock and you don't have clean banks, that's just a massive amplification of that macroeconomic shock, uh, which is why I'm arguing that we need to fix the banks in Europe and integrate the banking system, because banks is what's going to continue to fund our economies for a long time to come. So that's one point. I don't want to mix too much the, the sort of capital markets and, and the banking union side of the discussion. On the, um, on the problem of rates of return or rates, you know, return on equity, um, it's true that a lot of banks are struggling, but it's also true that if you have the right business model, you can actually be very profitable. Um, you know, you look at places like Lloyds Bank, you look like ING, which incidentally operates cross-border, but through, not through branches, but through internet banking. Uh, you look at even at Barclays, which is struggling tremendously at the group level, but you look at the, at the domestic uh, bank, they're actually very profitable. They're running, um, you know, return on equity, rates of return on 15, in some cases, all the way up to 18%. So... I would argue that part of the problem where you have terrible return on equity is still sort of legacy of having very bad business models, right? Where you either still have a large investment banking operation, uh, you still have bad assets, you still have non-performing loans. Uh, I think we have plenty of examples now in Europe that show that banking is not a bad business if it's done uh, the right way. And, and indeed, if you have... Uh, high rates of return, you know, you have the ability to make an acquisition and, and try to expand and scale. Now, um, to your question, I think you can't expect these banks to do that unless they know for sure that the politicians are really going to deliver them an integrated market. You know, um, they know that the tax system isn't going to be harmonized anytime soon, but that's okay. They can deal with that. But what they, what they don't want, or what is a real impediment to cross-border integration, is if they get penalized by making an acquisition because they suddenly have to hold much more capital than if they simply expanded their own bank in their own country, to put it very simply. So I think this is where, you know, I want to make this clear. I'm not suggesting that somehow... <clears throat> banking union should be created in a dirigist way by some kind of government intervention. All I'm saying is we need to create the conditions that then would allow um, the banks to make the right moves. Now, in some cases, public policy is very important. For instance, on being more aggressive on reducing non-performing loans, I think is an area where you know, to some extent, quite a bit has happened, uh, including in Italy, by the way. There are some examples in my paper. Um, Italy has made progress on this and is in, in a number of cases forcing quite aggressively the reduction of these NPLs. Let's hope that will continue with the new government. But these are, these are things you need to do in order to set the stage so that the private market can then begin to respond, uh, as we've seen with this discussion between Sokchen and Unicredit, which I think is a, um, is a promising uh, 
you know, development. And maybe tells us that we don't need to be that pessimistic on it because the fact that these discussions are taking place suggests that uh, the non-performing loan at least problem, at least in the case of Unicredit, can't be that horrible. Otherwise, this discussion wouldn't be wouldn't be taking place um, in the first in the first case. Uh, so I'm advocating market solutions, but you can't expect these to come about if if the the the, the regulatory legislative environment is such that you're penalized to do it. <clears throat> My name is Bernadette Segol. I'm not coming from the banking or finance sector. My background is European Trade Union. Um, so I don't understand everything you say. But it's my fault. <laughs> no, 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 it's not. Um, but I try to understand because, of course, we know that it was so uh, dramatically horrible for people, uh, the banking crisis that happened a few years ago. So what I understood for sure from uh, your intervention, but also Gunda and of course, uh, others in other meetings, was that the um, difficulties in setting a banking union is in the end political. Um, we've had some response concerning Germany. Um, I don't have a response on why uh, President Macron is so lonely, enthusiastic about pushing uh, this dossier. And I have an hypothesis on why the Italians would have difficulties in uh, um, completing the banking union. Because, and my, that is my supposition, and I would like to know if you think this is um, real. Because establishing a banking union, in the end, would have requirements on people, on policies, on the economy, that would be unacceptable or too dramatic for politicians to support them. So the balance in the end for this uh, banking union is, can you do it or is it impossible to do it without the consequences on econo national economic policies that have consequences on the people? And I think it is a very, for me, it's a very important question because on the one hand, I understand the need for it. On the other hand, I know for sure that there can be social um, destabilization if these policies are imposed on people. So is my interpretation correct? Uh, and do you think that it would be better to do it slowly rather than pushing it uh, against the people who are going to bear the brunt of the consequences? Let's go this way. Then the question there, and then we go to Stefan and 
Uh, David Clayton, Illinois State University. Uh, I'd like to quickly lay out a scenario for why I think deposit insurance might be a reality uh, in the not too distant future. Uh, if we look at balance sheets, which are our historical record, a snapshot in time of past behavior under institution and policies uh, that were put into place, uh, we do see bad uh, residuals of that, uh, non-performing loans. Uh, we have made progress on that as we've changed the uh, single uh, rule book, the single supervisory mechanism, which will uh, make going forward more commonality in the way that capital and liquidity requirements uh, leave residual risk within the deposits parts of the balance sheet. So I'm more optimistic that going forward, we could have an experience rated insurance scheme, which was independent of location across the uh, um, banking system. However, the union expands, uh, which becomes less politicized over time. Okay, thank you, Stefan. Thank you. Stefan Rotti, IMF. One time you mentioned something positive, the SRB, SRF. But I wonder, as long as you have one country, one vote decisions, and in the bill in the end is national, can you really take European decisions there? Is up to no, is not. I'm not talking about last weekend, but in the whole contingency planning, what you do, are you not just thinking about your national interests, even if you're around a European table? Another question is, you mentioned you compared 2007, 2018. Do you look at individual countries? Because I was thinking about Belgium and Portugal, where you clearly have a change. They really went from national ownership to cross-border ownership, and both banking systems really, did, they, they let it go, maybe pushed on the, by the crisis, but they didn't resist, and so now they are both mainly foreign-owned. Thank you, there's Sebastiano. One question which uh, is connected to what Maria said, uh, and then uh, another one uh, on the main topic. I mean, uh, you said that we should uh, remove obstacle, capital, liquidity, etc., to cross-border mergers, essentially. But I mean, for your knowledge, I mean, on the original proposal of the Commission, there were 13 countries that were very much against. These were host countries supported by a big one. So, I mean, uh, then they said because there is not a banking union completed, etc. So, which goes back to what we were saying. Now, on the banking union, I mean, I think it's fair to say, as uh, the colleague from BBBA said, a lot of risk reduction has been said. And what Guntram showed, it is only risk reduction, essentially. The only mutualization is the part of the contributions, uh, the partial contribution in transition period to the resolution fund, which are partly, only partly mutualized. Therefore, the question is, then you said, well, but we should continue, of course, no discussion about that reduction of NPLs. You mentioned Italy, it has decreased a lot, will decrease in two, two years, is projected to go to European average, etc. But the question is, do you think that what Guntram said in the political debate in Germany and other countries, we don't want to pay for deposits of, uh, I mean, of banks of other countries that go bust because of this and that, no? Um, even though there were not, MPLs. 
this would be different. So in other words, it is not that the bar is continually raised on risk reduction since uh, many years because there is a political, uh, I mean, uh, common understanding in certain countries that uh, they do not want to renounce to some or to make other changes like what you said, the consolidation in spark customs, when you open the market, you have integration. Or another things regarding the, the EDIS in particular is the IPSs where it is well known that the two IPSs do not want, you know, there are institutional protection schemes, no? the two of the, the two, I mean, the category of banks in Germany, they do not want to, to, to pay contributions to the EDIS in any, in any way, because otherwise they should, either they pay double, or they should renounce, if they had the European system, they should renounce to all the benefits that are granted in European legislation as being part of the IPSs, which are, Many. So the thing is, uh, this is very political. You see, the analytics, if you look at the occasional paper of the ECB, including the riskiness of individual banks, the latest one presented, says that there is no cross-subsidization. And it takes into account the actual riskiness, because it is end 2016 data, where the NPLs were even much higher than today. Therefore, I doubt that even if you did not, had not any MPLs or uh, any sovereign exposures, then uh, this thing happens. So it is very ideological, as Guntram said. It is difficult to sell to the public, but this is the role of politicians. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. The question here? No, the, 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 the framework you are proposing is very clear. Um, bankers uh, for profit motives should look for a banking integration if they were not stopped by different hurdles uh, from from the public uh, from the public side. Uh, so there is an underlying profit motive, but then uh, there are political hurdles. My question is whether these political hurdles are the same in all couple of countries, or you can think that these uh, political hurdles could be lower in some group of countries than in other group of countries. Now, you refer to uh, Unicredit and uh, Societe Generale. Um, and, and of course, you, you would think that there the political hurdles, especially now, are particularly. But what Commerzbank uh, and Societe Generale, would uh, the political hurdles there be lower? So can we expect uh, that there would be more integration where the political hurdles are lower. Um, this doesn't seem to have been the case so far, but could it be the case in the future? And perhaps one last question here, and then we come back to it. Thank you very much. Um, Emiliano Tornese, um, I totally agree when you say that uh, private risk sharing is actually the solution. Um, and in a way, this is missing because as you mentioned, CEOs, do not have clarity on the legal framework, regulatory, and the political context. And this is partially due to the absence, let's call it, on the completion of the banking union. Um, one of the first things I learned when I lived and worked in the United States was that groups in the United States perform well because when the cycle is down in Texas, they can still be profitable and can make loans because the cycle is up in California. So the first question is how much the absence of this completion is affecting uh, the competitiveness of European groups towards international groups, first question. 
And second question is, is the level of homogeneity that is referred to in the debate indeed possible? Because actually, if you look at the US, groups are integrated to cope with these different levels of cycles, no? So the question is, is it possible to have these homogeneity of cycles within the euro area? Okay, thank you very much. There's, there's a lot here, but we have a little... Tough. Yeah, tough questions. So, you know, uh, you have the prerogative to choose what you think you can okay. answer. Okay, <laughs> let me try to pick on a few. Um, so your question is a very important one, um, you know, and ultimately comes down to who is going to be the kind of beneficiary of this and who might pay a kind of macroeconomic, or I guess from your perspective, a kind of labor market price for all of this. Um, I think the reason, if I look at it at the moment, and this is a political economy question, but if I see is, you know, who is resisting for what reasons, it strikes me that it's less about the issues you're focused about and more about entrenched kind of nature or structures of the banking system. So, you know, in Italy, obviously an implication is part of the story here is we need a further reduction of NPLs. We've gone from 6 to 5%. It's actually quite significant, but it's still 5%. Um, and that's a hard thing to swallow. There's also risk from an Italian perspective. If it's done the wrong way, it could potentially squeeze growth, right? So you can kind of see where that logic comes from. In Germany, I think, as I, su as I suggested, and I want to be careful, I'm not a, you know, I'm not German and I'm not a great expert on the kind of domestic banking system, but it looks to me like the structure of the banking system, the role of the Sparkassen is a very important part. And I had some of this in my own experience in the, uh, the post-regulatory reform where you could see the power of the, uh, the Sparkassen lobby, even in the discussions around Basel III. Um, France probably has most to gain today because they have you know, the healthiest big bank that would probably be in the best position to kind of move forward. Uh, Germany, on the other hand, I would also say has some advantages in the sense that potentially longer term, this might seem funny to say that now, but, you know, Deutsche Bank should be a natural long-term kind of big player on the European uh, front. At the moment, they're in a very, very weak position because of terrible mistakes on the investment banking side. But conceptually, at least, you know, it's hard to imagine that Germany would not benefit in terms of their own financial institutions in the long term. Italy, frankly, has two very, and Tessa is a very strong bank at the moment, and Unicredit has raised capital, has very aggressively kind of reduced their problems, uh, and is now, as we, as we talked about, on the forefront of potentially being a beneficiary of this. So I think you can, at the moment, I don't think it's the sort of questions you worry about that that stops this from going forward. It's really the implications it has on the, on the kind of national structure of the banking system. And more importantly, the hurdles, as, as we said, are still there. On EDIS, um, and I guess related to your very tough question on Germany, I'm not sure how I should answer that one. You know, is Germany going to perpetually raise the bar every time we make more progress, something else comes up to, the, to, to prevent it from forward, maybe you're a better place to answer that question. <laughs> I, I, I don't think so. We I need think, the Swiss uh, advice. <laughs> I think Germany has still um, noble kind of objectives when it comes to Europe. As I said, I have sympathy for 
not rushing into the fiscal, um, you know, the, the, the fiscal risk sharing, which is why I'm proposing that it'd be much better to begin with the private risk sharing. That doesn't mean the other things aren't important, but the, you know, the one thing I would say, and, and I think I could back this up, so I'll be bold. Um, Germany would have, this is hard to explain in Germany, so bear with me, the Germans amongst you. Had there been more risk diversification, in other words, had there been less of a nexus between the sovereign and the banks, and even had there been a deposit insurance scheme at the European level, I'm convinced Germany today would have less risk on its sovereign balance sheet than it does. Uh, by the way, Germany has not paid anything yet. So it's important to, I always start with that in Germany, to remind people that actually this crisis hasn't actually cost you anything yet. It is true, of course, that Germany has assumed significant risks on its sovereign, ba on its sovereign balance sheet as a result of the crisis. But these risks have so far not led to actual payment. I'm convinced that had there been a more diversified banking system in, this, in the way that I suggested, and even had there been a deposit insurance scheme, Germany would have less risk on its balance sheet today. So I think you can actually make the case both ultimately in the long term are in Germany's interest to have a more diversified, integrated banking system and even to have a European-level deposit insurance scheme. Because basically, in the event of a crisis, it would make it less likely that Germany has to pay. Um, so, now that's a hard thing, you know, it's a bit of a... The, the numbers are hard to put together, to, it's a counterfactual problem in, in many ways. Um, but I think, uh, ultimately, Germany will understand this uh, the difficulty, I think, to your question, is it has to accept that the structure of its banking system is going to change. Okay? And I think there is no, no, you know, we can't beat around the bush on this one. Uh, if the story that I'm laying out comes to pass, whether it's over five or ten years, the one thing I'm sure about is the German banking system will not look the way it does today. Uh, now, there are I can see many benefits for Germany, as I suggested a minute ago, but I can also see a very different landscape in terms of Sparkassen primarily and maybe Landesbanken. I think at the moment what they just don't want to do is to be scammed into kind of putting up ex ante um, a fiscal um, risk sharing um, while there's still a lot of risks around, and that's, you know, that's fair enough. So. What should happen is further reduction of these risks, lowering the barriers, let the market start to move in the right direction, and in parallel continue to work on, on the deposit insurance scheme at the resolution fund, which you know will be needed it, at some point. It is not inconceivable, and you mentioned the U.S. Of course, the U.S. has this beauty of always kind of different regions doing differently, but not always. You know, you and I were in these committees in Basel when we started asking questions about subprime, and remember the answer they always gave us. Don't worry, it's only 15% of the mortgage market, and secondly, there has never been an event in the post-depression history of the United States where the housing market at the aggregate level declined. Well, guess what? Uh, you know, it did. So it is not inconceivable that at some point the entire European economy gets crushed. That could happen. And that's why you need 
at that point when that happens in EMS and why you'll need an EDIS and why you might need a resolution fund. But that is not today's problem, right? That's unlikely to happen today. So what we should begin with is the private risk sharing so that we reduce the risk of that happening. And, you know, even, I'm convinced, even if that happens one day and the whole economy gets hit the way the U.S. did, if at that point, hopefully a long time from now, we have a more diversified and more integrated banking system and a deposit insurance scheme, I would tell every German in this room and in Germany that the implications of that would be for Germany, you will have to take on less risk than you did during the, during the Euro crisis in 2008, 10, and, and, and 12. That's a hard thing to get across to Germans that ultimately this system would actually be in their interest because it would be less likely to occur a big problem. And even if it did occur, because of the diversification, Germany would end up with less risk on its sovereign balance sheet. And that, I think, has to be the story that the other countries have to, not, not sort of hyperbolically, but with proper analysis. This is where you and other academics can play an important role to try to... Um, to try to show that. So I don't want to join in in a sort of sinister view of the Germans always moving the bar whenever others make progress. I think that would not be uh, appropriate. They have legitimate concerns, but they also need to expect that, um, you know, the rest of Europe would expect them to accept changes in the structural nature of the banking system um, if this can move ahead. I mean, perhaps on the last point, I can just uh, sort of um, add um, that um, we looked at, um, you know, fiscal fiscal costs of uh, of banking crisis um, and looked at whether they are correlated with um, the state of development of an economy, and um, you know, because that would be in, in principle, if if you if you think that poor countries, poorer countries are more likely to incur fiscal costs for their banking system than richer countries, you know, then you don't want to move ahead as Germany to, uh, to, to, to share risk. And you know, the empirical evidence suggests that there is no correlation of that sort. So, so basically, it becomes uh, a risk diversification argument where actually you yourself as Germany can actually draw on the common uh, common insurance schemes and so on, fiscal insurance schemes if necessary. And if you look at the costs throughout this crisis, in this banking crisis, I mean, Germany incurred a lot of public costs for its own banks, a lot. It was uh, one of the highest in the, in the Eurozone. Um, and, uh, and, you know, basically the notion should be, well, we, We'll get hopefully less risk in the banking system. I think that's that's actually very important, and um, you know the BID and these things I think go in the right direction of you know making sure that less uh, liability, uh, contingent liability for the fiscal for the fiscal side is is out there. But you know if it happens, um, it's going to be shared, and it's going to be shared across the entire eurozone. And guess what? Even Germany could draw on the uh, on the on the common insurance. Now, that is just an additional argument to the argument that you are making, that basically, well, once we, we have an integrated banking system, um, we share risk through the financial system, and therefore um, we um, uh, reduce um, uh, the likelihood that, you know, um, basically the ECB has to chip in uh, in providing um, support to, to countries in trouble, right? I think that's, that's an additional argument. 
perhaps the one point where I would sort of want to at least ask the question, I mean, I, I think I agree with you that the music is in the banking system, not in the capital markets, because we are just such a bank-based system. But I still feel that uh, the importance of, of equity is, um, is not fully reflected here, because, I mean, banking... Banking is not a very good way of sharing risks cross-border, right? I mean, we know that, I mean, basically credit is not a way of sharing risks. I mean, now then perhaps big bank groups can share a little bit within their group, but, you know, to what extent they will, will do that, I, I'm, perhaps you can enlarge a little yeah, bit. Yeah, no, all I meant to say is we have to be realistic. This is a right. whole journey. No, I agree and, and, you know, right now we need to worry about what we have and improve that and the other thing is a sort of parallel story. I'm not right. suggesting it wouldn't have advantages, it certainly would, but it's I just don't like when this is posited as something that could be just around the corner. Oh, you no, know, no, that's no. just not going to happen. I, sure. By the way, I forgot to answer your question, the small countries you're right, you're absolutely right. The numbers I quoted are at the aggregate level. If you look at a number of the small countries, the numbers, the trend looks much better. Um, so, in some ways, you know, yeah, uh, it's in, in some of the small countries we've seen an improvement in terms of integration, but at the aggregate level, that's not the case. And then, I forgot to answer your question, which is an important one, how are these banks going to compete with the U.S.? Well, I guess my whole, or my whole kind of framework is that they should compete less with the U.S. banks, and if they had a proper integrated European market, you know, now they would, of course, the U.S. banks would presumably try to be here as well in this market, so they'd still have to compete against them. But we would finally move away from uh, this disastrous development that we've seen over the years, you know, where they keep trying to get into this investment banking business with terrible, terrible consequences. I mean, if you actually look at, you know, if you look at the data, forget the kind of storytelling, just look at the data. This has been an unmitigated disaster since the mid-90s. Bad for the shareholders, bad for the countries, bad for the banks. And I'm not even adding up the fines that have incurred, that have been paid now from, from this adventure into U.S. investment banking. I mean, once you add that up, it's, the numbers are just devastating. Um, you know, the only... The only constituency that's kind of benefited from this has been the managers up to a point. They've lost their reputation and they're sort of standing in society, but they walked away with a lot of money. But if you look at every other constituency <laughs> in this, the shareholders, the banks, the countries, the economies, um, I think this detour that began in the mid-90s uh, into U.S.-style investment banking by European banks has been an unmitigated disaster. And now, you know, part of the story is, well, organisms want to grow, that's sort of, you know, that's the things of, you know, that's what nature does. Uh, if we don't give them a chance to grow um, and take advantage of this big European scale, they're going to go somewhere else and do silly things over there. Uh, if you add to that the depressing but unfortunately rather likely kind of nature of the way global politics are evolving, then I think uh, there's never been a greater urgency to kind of create a scaled up, you know, European 
solution on so many fronts, frankly, whether it's technology, whether it's banking, whether it's security. Um, you know, I can't, I can't think of a, a more compelling time to do this than now. And I travel constantly between the U.S. and China, and I can tell you that when you do that for a living, it seems pretty obvious what Europe needs to do. Not just in terms of banking, this is a much bigger story, obviously. Okay, well, I think this is a good time to, uh, to, to finish on a good message, actually. <laughs> also, we are also way above our time. Thank, Philip, thank you very, very much, much for coming for a very interesting discussion. Guntram, for your intervention, and thank you all for coming. Please join us in helping the panel. Thank you.